The poet moves forward to that edge, but lives sensibly, through the senses, not because of them. Above all, he watches where he steps, as if it matters where he leaves his prints. The senses overwhelm him at his peril, though he must be taken by something greater. That is what he uses senses to perceive. The poet's task is simple. He looks for quiet and speaks to what he finds there. But like Blake in his engraving shop, works with the fierceness of acid on metal, melting away apparent surfaces and displaying the infinite which was hid. In the early morning he listens by the window, makes the first utterance and tries to overhear himself say something from which in that silence it is impossible to retreat. Well, the poet is a person um, who tries to say it, whatever it is at any one time. Um, that man or woman is trying to articulate something that's hovering, a kind of beckoning uncertainty. Now, the poet can be trying to articulate something that's very personal, um, but often that personal leads out into greater truths which uh, the whole of society is facing at the same time. And it's often been said that the poet is 50 to 100 years ahead of their society at the time. They're asking questions which are just over the horizon, actually, and they're usually asking uncomfortable questions because the whole discipline of poetry has to do with trying to overhear yourself say things from which you cannot retreat. You're trying to overhear yourself say truths which are difficult, um, personal truths and uh, more uh, general um, contemplative, religious, mystical, uh, societal truths also. And this is why uh, uh, dictators and uh, despots always go for the poets first of all. You know, because the poet is trying to say it, and uh, your man, the dictator, does not want you to say it. That's the worst thing you can do. And so, for instance, in Russia in the 30s, during the dark days of Stalin, you know, the religious leaders of Russia were the poets. They were Mandelstam, they were Pasternak, uh, two men, and then the two women were Marina Svetaeva and uh, Anna Akhmatova. And those four people, you know, through their courage in saying it... Um, when you, when you could be sent off to the camps for saying it, um, uh, kept the uh, folk soul of the Russian people alive in, the, in those dark days. And, you know, in, when Pasternak used to do his translations of Shakespeare, um, which he could get away with because here was Shakespeare, this monumental institution, and therefore you were allowed to translate him. But many of those lines from Shakespeare in Russia became code words for freedom. And so Pasternak would give his talks, uh, his translations of Shakespeare, presentations of them. And by Russian standards, Pasternak had a bad memory. And you see, everything was memorized and presented by memory. And he would forget a line of Shakespeare. A person at the front would stand up, shout out the line, and he would say, thank you, and carry on. He'd go on a little bit further. He'd forget the line again. Someone at the back would stand up, shout out the line. Uh, he'd say, thank you, and carry on. And it, see, it didn't matter um, that, that, that everyone knew the lines already. It didn't matter. The fact that they were being said uh, was incredibly powerful for people, and they were being said out loud. And so the poet, um, the man or, or woman who attempts you know, this ancient art is always attempting uh, to speak out and remind people of what it means to be human, to be fully human. As a poet working today, what are the things, what is the it that needs to be said, in your view? It has to do with the recovery of the soul, 
and the recovery of the texture and color and character uh, and richness and nourishment uh, that lies in a good uh, soul life. And so much of our uh, society today uh, strips us of soul. It uh, deracinates our experience. In other words, it takes, uh, you, it, it takes you away from your ancestors. It takes you away from the land where you belong. It takes you away from your community. And it takes you away from the uh, natural um, um, nourishment that lies in the, human, in the ordinary human voice. Now, I'm not going to attack society um, just out of a matter of road because you know, society is simply an extension of ourselves. It's a point of uh, spiritual evolution which we've reached, in which at some time or another we decided we would go into this um, bare room, the bare room we've constructed in modern-day society. Now, Ireland, you know, I'm a visitor to, to Ireland at the moment, although my mother's Irish, she's from Waterford. You know, in Ireland, the soul is much more alive than in many other countries, um, simply because of the, uh, the love of articulation. There's a willingness to try and articulate, to tell the story, and really we're storytelling animals. And to me, religions um, of whatever stripe are attempts to tell the story the best you can, the story of the soul's uh, journey in the world and the magnificence of that journey. Why do you think that soul is still more present, uh, present in Ireland? Because of the people here and, and the, uh, the reliance in people here on community to a greater extent. I mean, everyone in Ireland is also lamenting at the slow disappearance of community. I mean, it's happening all over the world. Um, but certainly it's stronger here than, say, the United States, where I live or uh, England, although you get very strong communities there. I mean, you can make... We're, I'm making generalities now, so there are strong communities in every country around the world. But generally, you know, the onslaught of modern-day society is against uh, community, um, is against um, heartfelt, restful living. As a poet trying to help society rediscover soul, how do you do it? What in practical ways, what can you do? Well, you know, the poet can't begin by trying to help society. You can't do it because you end up with some kind of artificial socialist, realist uh, poetry which no one wants to listen to because it's just propaganda. You have some idea, you see, about what society wants to do. Um, but fortunately, other people uh, aren't very interested in it. And so the only way the poet has of going in is through their own privacy. You go in as deeply and as, as, as far in as you can. And the faith is, you see, that once you get to, a, to a, a far enough in is that there's a commonality that belongs to everyone. But you have to get right to the bottom of your own privacy. So you can't... This is what's marvellous about the art. It disarms you right, right at the beginning from having any kind of five-year plan for society. You must go in and you must find out... Um, what your internal imagery is. This is where the word imagination comes from. But you must test that against the world. The words must communicate. It's no use writing a poem that only you can understand. Any poem is magnificent, um, but only certain poems will speak to others, and that's when it gets tested in the world. And the great poem, you see, everyone can walk into it in their own way. There's a marvellous few lines by uh, William Carlos Williams, a uh, marvellous uh, 20th century American poet, where he says... Uh, uh, my heart rouses, thinking to bring you news of something that concerns you and concerns many men. 
Look at what passes for the news. You will not find it there, but in despised poems. It is difficult to get the news from poems, but men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. My heart rouses, thinking to bring you news of something that concerns you and concerns many men. Look at what passes for the news. Look at what passes for the news. You will not find it there, but in despised poems. But in despised poems. It is difficult to get the news from poems, but men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. What reaction do you get to your work? Well, amazingly enough, uh, um, be, I think perhaps because I, I have all the poems that I work with, both my own and others, all memorized. Um, and so I work with hundreds of memorized poems. And so there's an aspect of storytelling to it. And so people tend to get drawn in. And so I, can, I take my poetry into all kinds of forums into uh, conferences, um, universities, colleges. I even go into the um, business world and I work with change. And I use the poetry of, as a way of understanding the phenomenology of change. In other words, what happens along the way when you try to change. How is that received in the business world? It's received very well, actually. I mean, when I first stand up, they wonder, they wonder uh, what I am doing there. <laughs> and they're scared to death they're going to have to write poetry themselves. So the first thing I disabuse them of is the fact that they're going to have to write poetry themselves. Um, you see, all these companies are trying to change now because the world is such a terrifying place for businesses because you not only have some business uh, um, in the next state producing something better than you um, and getting it to market in a faster way, but you've also got one in Singapore and Japan. And you see, so they have to be tremendously adaptable now. Now, the most adaptable um, thing we have on this earth is a human being. And so the people are becoming more and more important. Now, they want these people to be more creative, you see, but they don't know how to do it because they're uh, trying to legislate creativity. You can't say, excuse me, but I'd like an increase in the creativity quotient, please, this week of 7.85% uh, by Thursday afternoon. It doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is that creativity belongs to a person's soul. It's part of their soul. You can only make room for it. And you can only um, tend that person almost like you tend a flower in the garden. And so you have to uh, change the whole company. And so here's this marvelous excuse now to deal with the soul at work. And it's a marvelous time because of that. The events have made... I like working in the business world because it has to work for these people and it has to be useful. And so it's a kind of litmus test. And my work is all about bringing poetry back into the mainstream. You threw me, though, there when you said that it has to be useful. Something yes. has to be useful for these people. There yes. seems to be a complete contradiction in that sense. Well, that's the contradiction I'm trying to uh, bring together, you see. Uh, poetry is of immense practical use to people in the art of living, you see. And there's nothing that's larger in our art of living than work. You think of how much time uh, we all spend at work. We spend more time at work than we do with our families. We spend more time at work than we do in our churches. There's a way in which it had better be giving us more than it is now, or we are in deep trouble. We are in deep trouble. And we have been for centuries, ever since the Industrial Revolution, when the work was taken out of the natural home where you lived and into this strange artificial um, 
box called a factory where you went off and you left your family behind. Yeah, so the usefulness of poetry is, is of reminding us of all these uh, rich dynamics that are happening all the time inside people. You seem very optimistic. I am. I am optimistic. Why? Partly because of the way my own life flows. And uh, there's, it seems to be that when you give yourself over to your desires and your wants in the world, the, the world starts moving on your behalf and things present themselves and you find yourself giving yourself over to the strangest things and you wonder what the heck you're doing in the middle of it and in the end the story comes true if you're following your, uh, your star in some ways um, that's not to say that life uh, doesn't have terrible um, you know, suffering through all that, run through it all the time and poetry, part of poetry is, is finding a place for that suffering it's not, we're not talking about a birthday card poetry here where everything in the garden is rosy Poetry grants magnificence to our lives by saying that you can fail. You can fail at your life's destiny, and the stakes are very, very high. And suffering is a part of that, and you had better pl find a place in your life for suffering, otherwise you're in big trouble, because you're denying a huge part of life. And so how do you praise suffering? Not in a, not in a, a naive way, but in, a, in the way in which you walk into the middle of it and make a home in it. Your optimism seems to extend to the broader society. I mean, you see, you see positive change taking place, which I think mightn't be apparent to a lot of people. I do, I do. You know, when I first, be, for instance, working in the corporate world in North America and uh, growing up as a left-wing uh, socialist in the north of England, uh, I inherited a great deal of prejudice about the business world and a great deal of uh, um, reluctance uh, to even enter it. And uh, I have been, you know, it's been a wonderful education for me because all of these great anonymous corporations, um, which in many ways are uh, doing great destructive things all around the world, um, are also made up of individuals who are all trying, many of whom are trying their best to find a place for themselves and trying to make sense of the world. And they find themselves painted into corners that they don't want to be in at the same time. And so um, I see it. I see this, um, um, just this tremendous uh, uh, longing uh, for meaning in everyone's life. And so, uh, you know, my work as a poet in, in writing a poem is to feed my own longings so that they go out in the world. You see, the mythological tradition, when you look at the mythological tradition, you're not supposed to take life on as a burden. You're not supposed to take your destiny on as a burden. You're supposed to feed your longings and your desires uh, for life. And then the longing does the work, you see. The desire does the work. And this is where poetry can throw... You know, it, 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 it can... Uh, you, it, you can fan the flames with poetry. You hear a, po a poet like Mary Oliver uh, from the East Coast, the United States poem like The Wild Geese where she says uh, you do not have to be good you do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting, you only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves you do not have to be good See, so you, you feel like she knows the territory because she says you do not have to be good you do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert Repenting, you only, you only, you only, you only, this is a 3,000 mile long only, you only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. 
See, this is a discipline in itself. You can follow this. It takes a lifetime to go through that only. You know, and that is the only that the poet is trying to articulate. You only have to, to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Well, the next lines you see, Mary Oliver goes on to say, she says, uh, tell me about despair. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. But meanwhile, the world goes on. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. But meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the soft pebbles of rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clear blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, whoever you are, whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over again, announcing your place in the family of things. So this is the tradition of poetry, you see. The tradition of poetry says the world um, of religious life, of contemplative life, the world of the soul, lies neither inside you nor outside you. But it's exactly the place at at, at which you are willing to meet the world where your soul exists. When you're totally caught up in yourself, um, you have no energy for the world. And the world can't find you, you see. And often we'll do this uh, because we get hurt in life. And uh, so what we try to do is, uh, is, not be, is not be found again because it's too painful to be found by life. You were found before and it hurt when you were found by life. And so what we do is we, we create a kind of inner stealth technology which is you're trying to get your profile down on life's radar screen as far as possible so that you don't appear there. Yes. So you see, the very act of speaking out, of taking a stand, of poetry... Is, is saying, I will appear, I will take a stand, I will be found by the world, you see. And so poetry, when you praise, and Ireland has a tremendous uh, tradition of praise poetry. You know, the Irish monks uh, praising uh, the bird, St. Michael coming in the form of a blackbird, the trees, you know, the colours, the lakes, the water. Um, and uh, um, it's just astonishing. And you see, what happened there was you praise the world to such an extent that this strange thing happens. The world starts praising you back. Oh. It's an experience uh, one has. I certainly experienced this. I worked as, uh, my original degree is in marine zoology. I worked in the Galapagos Islands as a guide and spent a year and a half um, every day watching animals, watching animals, watching the animals, you know. And, and of course in Galapagos you have this miracle where, whereby the animals don't have any fear of human beings at all. And so they'll come very close. You know, you'll get a, um, a blue heron which will walk right up to you. Or you'll stand beneath a branch with a Galapagos hawk uh, blinking down at you just a couple of feet away. So you're constantly reminded and constantly drawn out of yourself. And as you watch, um, for instance, you watch the flamingos, you go through a process. You watch the flamingos in the mango, mangrove swamps there. First of all, you're walking along the path with your group that you're leading there. And you're caught up in all your troubles, you see. You have no energy for the world. The whole world is only seen through this black hole of your own problems in the world. You know what it's like, Monday mornings especially. <laughs> Everything that happens has been <laughs> conspired you know, to <laughs> interfere with your life. You know. 
And uh, it's a very egotistical view, you know, because the universe really doesn't have the energy to even want to trip us up, you know. It's mostly our own tripping up. But then you get through that stage. And in Galapagos, you're constantly being tripped out of this stage, you see, by the fact that this beauty was coming to you all the time. And you'd get in the boat in the morning, and the sea lions would be leaping all around you, you see. So you couldn't stay in your problems. It just wasn't on. And so you'd go out, and you'd, st you'd start noticing. So the first part of praise is noticing. Well, the first part is actually not seeing anything, this black hole stage where everything disappears into yourself. Then you get noticing. Then you really start paying attention, and you start looking at things. But you're still wanting something from the situation. You're still wanting, I might want the flamingos to take off so that my group that I was leading could take wonderful pictures of their black underwings, which you couldn't see if they were standing. So you go through that stage and you get out of the wanting anything, and suddenly you're just looking. And then this tremendous space seems to open up around the creatures you're looking at, or the world you're looking at. A silence opens up. And then it's at that stage, that threshold, that attention turns into praise, you start praising it simply for what it is as a part of God's creation, whatever language you want to use for it, a part of, cre of the creation. And it's simply there, and it's simply fine in its magnificence as it is. Now, when you accept that, that something outside in the world there is fine just as it is, you must entertain the possibility that you are also fine as you are, and that you fit exquisitely too, you see. And this is when the praise comes back. And this is when it's intensely difficult for a human being because our lives are so based on shame. You know, guilt is where you feel you've done something wrong and you want to put it right. But shame is where you feel you are wrong and nothing can put it right, you see. You are wrong in yourself. And so what happens is when this magnificence comes back and says, you have the possibility of fitting exquisitely also, our shame gets triggered. And you look round over your shoulder and you say, who? And it's at this point you have to grow into it, you have to meet it. Ah, you have to open up to meet that moment. And that's the threshold, the, you know, the, the religious threshold, the contemplative threshold where you walk over into a peak experience, you see, where you grow into the world. And it, it, both, it involves a kind of um, immense self-confidence and self-compassion that you do belong that you are a son and daughter of this creation. And it also involves a tremendous humility at the same time, because you have to be open to whatever that is that's being brought. You can't control it, and that's the, that's the humility part of it. And so Mary Oliver says, you do not have to be good. You see, she, you see her trying to go through her shame there, and she does it. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting you only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. And then here the world comes to find her at the end. She says, like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over again, announcing your place in the family of things, you see. Now this is the ecological imagination. The ecological imagination says that there's a place for everything to fit. And if you have that kind of imagination, you can find a place for yourself also. There's that possibility that we also fit exquisitely in the world. You were talking about the Galapagos and about your own experiences yes. and the processes you went through yes. while you were there. And it had great meaning in terms of the Galapagos. Yes. For most people, they don't live in that extraordinarily natural environment. They no. live very often in very dingy 
urban environments. Yes. How can the same process be gone through there? Yes, with much more difficulty. Um, you have to admit that. Being in a place like the Himalayas or the Galapagos, or out in the west of Ireland even, you're constantly reminded about the tremendous, uh, this tremendous sacred otherness which is outside of you, of which you're only a small part. It's much more difficult in a dingy, um, run-down house, you know, in, uh, say, in Dublin somewhere. And, uh, but at the same time, you can only go one way, and that's try and bring more soul back into to your life. So it may be that bringing soul back into your life is simply painting the house there. You do whatever you can that takes you outside of yourself, and you do grant soul to the world. You say there is. The soul does not reside just inside a human body. The soul is at the place where you meet the world. But it is much more difficult to start from that. That's why it's so important for all of us to try and bring more soul into each of each other's lives. You can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. We need our society. We need our communities. You need the hand outstretched. You know, the present psychological mode tends to isolate people. You go to the therapist, and everything has to do with your biography. You see, the older mythological tradition includes the psychological. It says, yes, your biography is important. Yes, your mother did do that to you when you were seven-year-old. Your father did do that to you when you were 14 years old. But there's something else, you see. There's something else beyond in the world which is greater, which will help you make sense of it, and which perhaps was even, that was even preparing you for. James Hillman now, who's a psychologist in the United States, is challenging this psychological mode. And he's saying it lacks imagination. For instance, he looks at uh, a, a bullfighter in Spain, Manuelita, it was called. He was one of the finest bullfighters in Spain. When he was a child, he would never leave his mother's skirts. I mean, he, he, in the place where he lived, he was known for it. You know, that he was, he was always peeping out from his mother's skirts. He was under them or, or had them wrapped around him, and he was scared of the world. Now, the psychological mode, you see, says that Manuel became a bullfighter in order to compensate for this tremendous fear, you see. Well, this is a very reductionist way of telling the story, you see. And it doesn't grant much magnificence to Manuel's life. How and it makes, it makes the, uh, the world as if there's something wrong with it, too. Now, the mythological view says Manuel knew damn well he was going to be facing the greatest bulls in Spain. You bet your life he was hiding in his mother's skirts. He had an intuition of his own destiny. Wouldn't you, if you were going to be in that ring with the finest bulls in Spain, bred to beat the living dilates out of you, you would hold on to your mother's skirts. You see, that's the mythological view of the world. But that seems yes. to be making a quantum leap for which there's no evidence. That, that he would know, that he would have... The evidence is the way the story lies in your body when you hear it. It's a much more pleasing view of the world. And, it ha and it's not a, uh, a Pollyannish view of the world. It's not trying to make the world safe for you. It's simply granting um, um, a magnificence to the world which you, which you can't simply from the psychological point of view. And so here, you're taking a stand when you look at, uh, at the bullfighter as a child. You say, I am going to stand here because everything I've seen about life, the poet says, everything I've seen about life uh, tells me that it's, uh, um, that it's the mythological view that I'm going to take. It's the storytelling view. It's the soul-based view. And the psychological mode over here is useful, but it's only a tool. And it should be a part of a much greater imagination. So I take my stand over here, that's what I say as a poet. I take a stand for storytelling and meaning um, being a, 
um, an, in, uh, an integral part of people's lives. But it is marginalised in the world. The centrality of mythology yes. seems to be... It, it doesn't seem to be... It has been marginalised, but where are we going to go from here? We can't... Where, where are we going to go? Where is our society going to go? It can't go any further into empiricism. It started with Descartes in the early 17th century, or 16th century, I can't remember exactly what the time was. And it's run its course. There is no way to go with that. There is no place to stand in the universe where everything will be all right. You see, the hope of, of Descartian philosophy is that you can stop the world and get on it. And that's all the, also the hope of the strategic mind when, uh, when uh, confronted with the terrible beauties of the world, to use Yeats's phrase. The strategic mind ho hopes above hope that you can just stop the world for once in your life and get on and you'll be safe. And the world never grants us that immunity. It is always moving. It is always moving. The greatest phrase in uh, ancient Greek philosophy was, this too will pass. Everything passes. Everything passes. There is no immunity. You lose people who are close to you. You lose people from your own family. You lose houses that you loved. You lose jobs that you loved. We lose loss. Antonio Machado, the great Spanish poet, said, everything remains and everything passes, but ours is to pass as human beings. He said, ours is to pass. Todo queda y todo pasa, pero, pero lo nuestro es pasar. Everything remains and everything passes, but ours is to pass. And life is always moving, so how do you get that dance inside your own body too and meet life with the same movement? You have to move, you have to move. So the mythological view is talking about movement all the time. But in what way can mythology help? I mean, it, it seems to be an out there, a sort of a, yes. a little bit of entertainment. I mean, you're, you're ascribing it now a very, very central role. Oh, How yes. Can it be brought into the center? Yes, a religious contemplative role. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you look at the Bible, it's storytelling. You're telling a story. You're trying to tell the story in the best way you can. Now... For instance, if you have a person who says, no, this is ridiculous, I can live my life safely, I'll get enough insurance policies, I'll get the right job, I'll marry the right beautiful person, and we'll have just the perfect children, I'm going to work it out so I don't have to deal with any of these terrible beauties that Yeats spoke about. Um, then you can tell the story of, of Finn and the Salmon of Knowledge, you see, and the way that... Uh, um, the way that he wandered into that clearing when the older Fion had found the salmon. And the older Fion thought that he was the one destined, you see, to eat the salmon of knowledge. And the way that Finn came to eat it was that uh, uh, he left the younger Finn, the older Finn left the younger Finn to turn the salmon on the spit. But being a young boy, he was staring off into the woods and things, and he'd let his hand stop. And the salmon got burnt over the fire, a blister the size of his thumb, raised on one side of it and so Finn was scared to death of what, what the older man would say when he came back and, and he, besides he'd had the instruction don't eat any of the salmon and don't it has to be cooked just perfectly and whatever you do don't eat any of it and so Finn said well if I can just press that blister back in with my thumb and so he's trying to press it he's trying to press it just right he, he wants to be safe he doesn't want to be you know and he presses against the blister and it breaks and three red-hot drops of salmon oil fall out on his thumb. And, of course, what, did he, what does he do? Every Irish person knows it. In the United States, you tell this story, they don't know what happened, but he puts it in his mouth. <gasps> and that's what happens. That's when you, and then he became the greatest poet in Ireland, you see. Now, in the Zen tradition, 
the way of saying that is that uh, when you tell a Zen story, uh, you say, and then the monk was enlightened, you see. And uh, that's what life's like. You don't want to learn these terrible truths. You don't want to go through what it means to be the greatest poet in our You don't want to go through what it means to be a full human being. But sooner or later, you get yourself in a situation where this blister rises in one part of your life and you press your thumb against it and the three red hot drops of real life drop onto your thumb and you put it in your mouth and you taste it. You see, that is what's going to happen. If you can tell that story to a person, they'll say, oh my God, well I better be ready for it then. So you see, the myth is very, myths are very, very precise. This is what I work with in the business world, with poetry and mythology, for instance. They, have the, they love the bottom line, you see, in, in, in the business world, and the, the ledger sheet. And there's a wonderful place for that in the world, making sure at the bottom you've still got a few shillings left over. You know. On the other side of it, you see, though, they feel that you can't go into the inner world of a person because it's all wet and woolly in there, you see. And besides, you only go in with a trained psychologist because you never know what's going to happen. You know, People get emotional and all kinds of strange things. Well, they're right. But uh, the mythological tradition says it's equally precise in that, but the rules are very different. How so, is it equally precise? Well, for instance, if you ask a person, if you ask any person to open up to their own creative lives, I'm, you say to yourself, I'm going to open up to what my true place is in life. The first place you are going to wake up is in your own grief, you see. The first place you're going to find, and all the myths say this. See, here's the mythological truth. If you read Dante's uh, Commedia, for instance, he starts by saying, Nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita me retrovai per una oscura selva. In the middle of the road of my life, I awoke in a dark wood. You're in the dark wood. The reason is, is that when you say to yourself, I'm going to open up, to what it means to be fully alive. You have to face up to all those years when you were closed down, you see, when that part of you was closed down. There's no shortcut through that. So all the myths will tell you about this, you see. They'll tell you through story what it means to be human to go through them and go through those stages. You're going to find yourself in the dark wood. What do you do when you're there? Well, you can read the stories and you'll find out. It'll happen to you in your own way, but these things will happen. For instance now, in almost every myth and story, you meet an animal along the way early on in the story. And this animal is a big scary animal. It's a bear or a lion or whatever it is, but it has a thorn in its foot, you see. And for some reason you get over your fear and you gingerly take the thorn out, you see, and the animal looks you in the eye. And you look it in the eye. And then you go on and, and it's all forgotten. And then at some crucial place, some crucial place in the story, that animal appears and saves you from certain obliteration, you see. The bear comes back. The lion comes back. Well, that's a way of saying that you're going to meet people in your life um, who are going to ask things of you. And for some reason, you go out of your way and you help them. And you don't know why. You don't know why. You just do it. You, you do it... Um, because you, you can't do anything else. And you go off and you forget about it. Sometime later in your life, someone else is going to do that for you. And they're going to do it at a crucial moment. And there'll be nothing you can do to thank them to the extent that it made the difference in your life. And it's just, it, it's the energy going round. It goes round the world. It comes back. You know. So you can, get the, you can get the precision of these images and, and start to build up a whole 
imaginative picture of how life works. You study the old stories, you study the poems, um, but most of all you live them and tell the stories so they come alive. You know. So when a story, for instance, a myth says, uh, once in the kingdom there was a bad king. Now immediately you know this is part of the psyche they're talking about. It's a story, they're talking about the strategic mind here. The mind that is terrified of life and will try and control it at any cost. It's called the monkey mind in Buddhism. In Christianity it's called the devil. It's that part that wants to control life and exclude um, the wild possibilities um, of suffering. And the immensity of the life, the way it just rolls over sometimes like a tidal wave. Everything you built disappears in one day. So you hear it. I mean, there's that wonderful old uh, Irish story, isn't there, which every school child uh, reads, which is, what is it? Uh, uh, Lowry Lynch, he has horses, he is. Oh, yes. Lowry Lynch, he has horses, he is. Yeah. You see, there's a story that's very precise. It says, uh, every year the king has his hair cut and a child has to cut the hair. But after the hair has been cut, the child disappears. Because Lowry Lynchy has horse's ears, and he doesn't want anyone to know. Now here's the strategic mind, you see. It, it doesn't want to know that it has this instinctual animal side to it. The horse's ears, you see. The child is your innocence. Your innocence gets sacrificed on the altar of this bad king, you see who ritually kills it every year. So it can't, it can't live out, it can't tell the rest of the world. And here you have a marvellous, precise imagery of poetry because um, one child finally, doesn't he, he persuades Larry Lynchy that he won't tell anyone about the horse's ears. But, he, but this secret lives inside him so much that he has to go out and tell someone, so he goes out and tells the trees. He tells a tree. He just shouts it at the tree, sings it at the tree, whispers it at the tree. The tree receives uh, the knowledge inside its body. And one day the king sends out to, to have a harp made. And they come out and find this fine tree, the very tree. And they cut it down and they make the harp. And the first night the harper sits down to please the king with some music. The harp sings out, Lowry Lynchy has horses' ears. You see, there's the wood which is the paper. The poet writes, the harp, the singer, the storyteller will always sing out that Larry Lynchy has horses' ears. Stalin, you know, is, a, is an evil man, it will say. Whatever it is. Why is it that it's possible to pass through an education system which includes English literature yes. and receive poetry simply on an intellectual level? Yes, well, because of this this wish to defend oneself against it. I mean, it depends on... I, I, was, uh, I was very lucky in that I had a, a really live English master. You know, I, I was educated in the north of England at a grammar school. I had the best um, education I could hope for, and marvellous teachers, and one of them was, a, was an English teacher. But he saw, uh, he saw literature as blood. It was blood to him. It wasn't an abstract thing on the page. I always remember him coming in, coming into one class, uh, studying Shakespeare, grabbing one of the pupils, lifting him up by his collar, carrying him over into the corner, pushing him against the corner, and saying, Now, Colin, you are going to meet people in your life 
who hate you. And they hate you just because of the cut of your face. And there will be nothing you can do about it. Silence. And we all are waiting. And we are all thinking, what is this? We've already met the people who don't like us just because of the cut of our face. And then he says, now we can talk about Iago and why he destroyed Othello's life. And you see there, you've got it's, uh, you understand. You start to see this is life. Shakespeare was bringing life to you. He was interpreting life. This is not a cultural institution we are studying. This is blood, you see. This is real. So this is the kind of possibility that the poet serves. It's a reminder. You know, we're called homo sapiens, which means wise human being, wise man. Um, but we really should be called homo forgettens, because we forget what it means to be human. We forget what riches we have. And so the art of poetry is the art of remembrance, the art of reminding people of what's, uh, what's a priority in life and reminding them that the stakes are very high. And the poet tries to remind herself first or himself first that the stakes are very high. You can fail at your life. You can fail in your destiny. And that's the, the free will that God has given us. That possibility, that frightening, terrifying possibility of not living your life as it could be lived. For instance, to me, the soul isn't, isn't actually very interested in success or failure. That's the difficulty. This, our personalities are. The soul only wants to know, was it your experience? Was it your failure? Or were you trying to imitate your mother and you failed? Or were you trying to imitate your father or your teacher? Or were you trying to please someone else when you failed that way? If you were, there was no soul in it. There was no soul in it. The soul only wants to know, was it your failure? If it was, it's happy. It says, that's my failure. No one can take it away from me. Rilke, the great German poet, said, uh, winning does not tempt that man. Winning does not tempt that woman. This is how she grows, by being defeated decisively by greater and greater beings. Winning does not tempt that man. This is how he grows, by being defeated decisively by greater and greater beings. So you see, the, uh, Rilke says that, that you can't uh, eliminate the possibility of being defeated by life. You are going to both be triumphant and defeated by it. The only question is, when you're defeated, is were you defeated by something greater than yourself? And were you defeated by something greater than the last thing you were dealing with? So poetry again and again, he's always uncovering this. And the poet is just as reluctant as anyone else for those revelations. They just come as part of the discipline. You overhear yourself say truths you did not want to know. And this is at the basis of all contemplative life. It's at the basis of all religious life. It's at the basis of all arts. And it's our task now to stop separating religion, science and art and bring them all back together. They're all ways of remembering how we fit. They're all ways of storytelling. Poetry is one way of doing that. 